Hi, everyone. It's Ashley. Each week here on the deck, you hear raw interviews from family members and investigators who are looking for answers to cases that, for whatever reason, remain unsolved. But unsolved crimes are often unsolved for a reason. Time has cracked and curved around some of these cases for so long that getting answers has become complicated. Well, now, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to look at an unsolved case from 1991. She's speaking to investigators, key witnesses, and loved ones who are still searching for answers on how exactly 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr. died. But here's the thing. While Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, a string of crimes and other mysterious deaths point to so much more. Tune in each week for new episodes of Counterclock Season 6 wherever you listen to podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Our card this week is Eden Young, the Three of Hearts from Minnesota. 31-year-old Eden and her boyfriend were new to the North Star State. They'd only lived there about three months when in September 1992, Eden was seen riding away in a mysterious blue van never to be seen again. Now, more than three decades later, present-day detectives are traveling down some winding roads that previous investigators never explored in hopes that it will lead them to the truth. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. I don't know about you, but when I think of teenagers tossing out newspapers just as the sun's rising, neighbors still in robes, drinking coffee, waving good morning from their front porches, I think of Midwest suburbia. I think of somewhere safe. That's why shortly before 6 a.m. on September 28, 1992, a paperboy out on his usual route wasn't at all concerned when he spotted a pile of women's clothing on the side of the road on Lansing Avenue. In fact, he thought it was a little amusing. There was shirt, pants, bra. There was a purse. It was funny, he even said in a statement, he goes, I thought it was odd because who's ever missing this clothes must be running around naked because it was just like a full outfit worth. 
That was Detective Nick Sullivan, or Sully as his buddies over at the Washington County Sheriff's Office call him. The paper boy was in Grant, just about five miles east of Delwood, a small ritzy lakeside city north of St. Paul. It was a safe community, all things considered. So not thinking the pile of clothes on side of the road could mean anything nefarious, he picked up the seemingly lost belongings, threw them in his car, and continued his route. Later, when he had a free minute, he started looking for an ID amongst the items so he could try and track down their owner. And that's when he saw something that actually changed the way he viewed these items, something that cast them in a much more sinister light. On the shirt, he saw what looked like blood. So he booked it to a phone and called the sheriff's office. When authorities arrived on scene, deputies were quickly able to identify a woman's name on a motel receipt found inside the purse, Eden Young. That gave them a solid place to start, but little did they know, as they were trying to figure out if these were even Eden's clothes and if she was okay, authorities in St. Paul had just gotten a missing persons report for none other than Eden Young. The report came from a man named Ricky Williams, who called himself Eden's boyfriend. He told police that they had first met back in Philadelphia and had just moved to Minnesota together a few months ago. That's when they appeared to have officially become a couple. He was also well aware that Eden was a sex worker. He even admitted that he would often walk the streets with her, watch her make her dates, and sometimes he'd even cash in on some of her earnings. So, you know, maybe more pimp than boyfriend. Though I don't think Ricky ever used that term to describe himself. But I think it's fair to say that at the very least, to some extent, this dude was controlling what Eden was doing, and he wasn't denying that fact either. But what Ricky was to Eden wasn't the pressing question to police in that moment. They were more focused on the immediate issue of when he last saw her. Ricky said that that was around 3 o'clock in the morning that same day, September 28th, which would have been just a few hours before the paperboy spotted her belongings on the side of the road in Grant. At that time, they'd been hanging out with their friends, Stephen and Latia, at Stephen's house in St. Paul. Ricky said that he watched Eden get into a dark blue van just around the corner from Stephen's place. He remembered some distinctive observations about this van, like it had a loud muffler, round headlights, and square taillights. And there were only windows in the front of the car, on the driver's and passenger side, none in the back of the van. He also caught a glimpse of the driver, a man in his maybe 30s or 40s. He described that he was a white male. I don't think he knew the man or the van. He had even made a comment in his interview that he didn't think Eden knew who it was either, just based on how she approached and how she was talking to the person, because he said that if it was a known customer, that she approaches differently, she talks differently. So based on his observation, that's what he reported to the sheriff's office, that he didn't know who it was, neither did she. Ricky told police that he knew something was wrong when Eden didn't return home after a few hours because she never spent the night with clients. Plus, the two stayed together, usually hopping from motel to motel. But, he says, before he called the police, he went back to Stephen's house first, the same place they'd all been hanging out the night before when Eden left in that unknown van with that unknown client. He wanted to make sure she hadn't just maybe gone back there. But after he went back and she wasn't there, it appears that he did call the police later that same morning. Once they took the report, the first thing investigators did was interview Stephen and Latia. These friends weren't considered suspects, but Detective Sullivan noted that Latia seemed to be a close confidant of Eden and knew a lot about her day-to-day life. 
including the men she hung out with for work and her relationship with Ricky. Ricky was very physically abusive towards Eden. That was very well known by all of the people that were interviewed. I think it was Latia that said that Eden never cried. She never got emotional about it. It just, it was what it was. But that she would come around, she would be purple, she would be bruised up. They knew that Ricky was super abusive towards her. Now that I think about this, I think mom actually knew that as well, that there was physical abuse there. But again, I don't ever remember mom coming forward and saying like, you you know, he probably killed my daughter. It was just like, this is the life she lives, this is who she lives it with and how, how it's been going type thing. Whether Eden's mom thought of him as a suspect in her daughter's death or not, Ricky became a suspect for investigators from the get-go. Because even though he was being cooperative, police say that his original story quickly started to waver. I think his story changed a little bit in terms of the timing, in terms of where he went after she got into the van. I think that there were some inconsistencies there. They interviewed him so many times, and he eventually came back to his original statement. So the timing and all that stuff ended up working itself out. But ultimately, we have his statement. We don't have camera surveillance. So does this blue van exist? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. Detective Sullivan said he doesn't get hung up on the time discrepancies. Witnesses often mess up when it comes to recalling what exactly happened during what hour. He is alarmed by how in some versions of Ricky's story, there was a total change of his whereabouts after Eden supposedly got into that blue van. Like first, he initially said he went back to Stephen's place. Then it changed to he went all the way back to his house in Minneapolis. And these two places aren't like close. You wouldn't mix them up. Eden got picked up on the street right outside the corner from the friend's house in St. Paul. But then saying that he went back to Minneapolis, stayed the night, and then came back, you'd think he'd remember something like that. Ultimately, Ricky was the last person to see her alive. And to this day, detectives still have questions for him. Now, St. Paul police had already entered Eden into the National Crime Information Center's nationwide missing persons file. And since Washington County investigators had already found her name on a receipt with her stuff, they were able to connect the clothes that they had found to the missing woman out of St. Paul as soon as they got wind of that report. But the most critical question remained, where was Eden? Little did authorities know, she was less than five miles down the road from where her belongings had been found. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000-plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code DECK at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Why not grocery shop from the comfort of your couch? With Thrive Market, the no-junk-food healthy grocery store, you can 
I've been gearing up for summer trying to get myself in shape, and I actually have been getting all of my whey protein and collagen powders from Thrive Market. Not just from Thrive Market, but I get the Thrive Market brand, which is delicious, priced super well, and I feel like it's a brand that I can trust because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods, and they restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. Save time and money as a Thrive Market member on every single grocery order. On average, customers save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily. Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash deck for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash deck. Thrivemarket.com slash deck. The evening of September 29th, Washington County deputies received a 911 call from a resident on Many Levels Road in Delwood. That resident said he'd just found the mutilated body of a young woman. Deputies rushed over to the neighborhood, which is about 15 miles away from where Ricky said he last saw Eden in St. Paul. The guy who'd made the call and the neighbor who let him borrow his phone to do so were waiting outside for police at the house and took them to the area where her body was discovered. That's when investigators learned that it was technically the man's dog who first spotted her body. He told police that he had been walking his dog off leash at around 6 p.m. Not uncommon for that area back in those days. It wasn't like a super suburban neighborhood like you might be picturing. These houses are on larger lots with bigger yards. Plus, it's wooded. Think like residential, but spread out with lots of trees. So this guy told the cops he's taking a short stroll with his dog around the block, and he says that his dog normally just stayed right alongside him. But suddenly, the dog broke heel and just took off, running up a small embankment nearby. The owner said he casually followed behind him, probably just assuming that this good old boy was chasing after some small critter. But to his horror, his dog was standing over something far more sinister than a squirrel. To detectives, this situation, or where they were at, seemed like a body dump. Due to marks on her arms, it appeared that the woman had been killed elsewhere and then dragged up this hill. The other injuries on her body were severe, isolated to her face and head, and it included obvious blunt force trauma and sharp force trauma. Despite the brutality of her facial injuries, though, there wasn't much blood or really anything left with her body. They spotted two beer cans and some red fibers near the scene, which they collected that night just to be safe. But Detective Sullivan told us these items were likely unrelated. And later, testing of those items would confirm that. The results revealed nothing. With the reports of the bloodstained clothes found on the side of the road, the missing persons report, and now an unidentified body, police were pretty certain they knew who this was. And the next day, September 30th, the medical examiner's office used fingerprints to confirm their suspicions. It was Eden Young. Outside of her visible injuries, the autopsy revealed that she had also been strangled and that there was no sign of sexual assault. Investigators canvassed the neighborhood where her body was found, and they learned that no one saw or heard a thing. Not super surprising, though, considering how spread out the properties were. Police also set up roadblocks at two different intersections on Highway 96 and handed out flyers to see if anyone who was typically traveling that route saw anything between 3 and 6 a.m. That would have been the time when Ricky said that he last saw Eden getting into that van and when the paperboy found her clothing and purse along the road. They collected all of her belongings at her motel. They pulled her phone records, 
from the motel. And they started talking to other people that were somehow associated with those hotel stays or the phone records, the cab company. I mean, everything they could look into, it, it appears they did. Detective Sullivan told us those motel and phone records brought two possible clients of Eden's on the radar as potential suspects after this initial follow-up investigation. Employees at the Twins Motor Inn, which is no longer around today, also confirmed Eden was seen frequenting both rooms rented by these two men. Now, we'll call the first guy David. David wouldn't admit to being Eden's client. He just claims that he partied and did drugs with her and Ricky. And David also didn't have the best alibi. He said that he was with his girlfriend. But when detectives met up with her to confirm this, she said David had been with her that night and then, in the same breath, admitted she would totally lie to protect David. And I'm not even kidding. Our reporter literally thought this was a joke, but there are records of her interview in the case file. So I don't think we can necessarily confirm David's alibi for those early morning hours when Eden was killed. Detective Sullivan's commander, Sarah Helverson, also has knowledge of this case and was in the room during our interview. And she had some thoughts about David because he's the only suspect mentioned in the case files that has ties to Washington County. There's just, I get this gut feeling that, and I can't quite articulate it, but it's just too, where she was located and where he lives and that he knows her and that he has frequented utilizing the company of prostitutes in the past. His telephone number was on the call records from her hotel room. On 4-29-93, he was administered a polygraph examination by the BCA, who's the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension here. In summary, the BCA agent believed that due to the discrepancies that David may have further knowledge of the death of Eden Young and was withholding information. There was a lot making David look suspicious, but there was one big glaring problem. Ricky knew David. Like, the two were buddies. They would party and do drugs together. So if David was the one who drove off with Eden in the blue van, Ricky would have recognized him. So let me tell you about this second guy that police looked into, who we're going to call Brian. Investigators requested records from the various motels that Eden would frequent, and they found out that Brian had rented a room for him and Eden on September 20th. So this is just about a week before she was killed. Even though he was married at the time, he seemed to be more forthcoming compared to David, even admitting to authorities that he was, in fact, a client of Eden's. He was a bit reluctant, though, to reveal who he was with the night that Eden was killed because it was someone who had a restraining order against him. But eventually, he told police the deal, and they were able to verify his story. So it seems like after that, Brian was placed low on their suspect list. After the investigation into David and Brian kind of fizzled, Eden's case just stalled. Investigators did, however, continue visiting with Ricky for follow-up interviews off and on over the next several years. And then finally, in 1997, there was another significant lead that looked good. And that one took the investigation down an entirely different road. It was that Eden was involved in some, again, this is just a report, but Eden was involved in some drug trafficking type thing. And because of that behavior, it could have led to her death. So that was this theory that was out there and this story that was being told. I'm not going to go into it further because there are significant avenues we can still pursue on that one. But there is a whole other side of this other than just strictly the 
she's a commercial sex worker and one of her johns killed her. You know what I mean? There may be this whole other avenue that doesn't appear was ever pursued. Disappointingly, Detective Sullivan said it doesn't seem like much was done to follow up on this lead at the time. Though, we're not sure why. For 11 years, Eden's loved ones and the community were left wondering who could have committed such a heinous crime and gotten away with it for so long. And then there was this glimmer of hope in 2008. That's when an inmate at Oak Park Heights, which is Minnesota's only level five maximum security prison, put Eden's name back in the spotlight. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. Take it from someone who has made the mistake. And I should have freaking known better because in our very first house, we got a sectional from Ashley's store and it was amazing. So beautiful, withstood a lot. I mean, Chuck is absolutely invited on all the furniture, but you couldn't tell. And that couch, after years of service, then supported our lazy butts during COVID when we binge watch show after show after show. Not even so much as an indent in my favorite cushion. Long story short, when we moved houses, I was like, oh, I'll get a new couch. It costs more money. It must be better. No, I hate it. It looks like we've had it for a zillion years. Meanwhile, the Ashley couch is still thriving at my brother's place. And as if their stuff wasn't quality before, the new high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is somehow even better. It's designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Listen, I have corrected all of my mistakes, and we now have their new high-performance, durable furniture. I got it in this beautiful shade of blue. I got some chairs. Love them, love them, love them. So whether you're hosting and toasting or just enjoying furry friends, you can relax knowing you have the durability and convenience of Ashley Store's newest assortment of high-performance furniture. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When it comes to your health, there should be no compromises. Don't go back to that doctor who doesn't fully listen to you or rushes through your appointment. Instead, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Search by location, availability, and insurance. No compromises. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. And you don't have to wait forever to get in with someone good. When I looked online, the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score some same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com deck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash deck. ZocDoc dot com slash deck. This prisoner, a man who we'll call Sam, made a confession. He said he's the one who murdered Eden. But when investigators asked him for details regarding the facts of the case, surprise, surprise, he couldn't give them any. Detective Sullivan didn't have too many details about this lead. He wasn't the one who was looking into it back in 2008, so he's not sure what Sam's motive was for making this false confession. Maybe he was looking for a reduced sentence for whatever he was already in there for, or he was just looking to get out of his cell for a day or two. Or it's possible that maybe he was dealing with mental health issues and was just confused. 
At that point, they really had no reason to believe this guy. But they still did their due diligence and took his DNA. And why, you may ask? There's been no mention of DNA in Eden's story thus far. Well, we have a bit of a reveal for you. And it involves some good news and some bad news. The good news is that Detective Sullivan told our reporter JC that there is, in fact, DNA in this case. There was a partial male DNA profile taken from the crime scene that investigators can use for comparison. But they won't say whether the DNA was blood or semen or what. When we asked, Detective Sullivan kept it super vague. But he would say that the DNA they have is not something that could have accidentally been left behind. And that the DNA came from Eden and was from her person. Whatever was left behind was enough for investigators to rule out Sam, the false confession guy. They've also been able to compare it to the three major suspects that we've covered in this episode so far. Ricky, David, and Brian. But now comes the bad news. None of them came back as a match. Though Detective Sullivan says that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't guilty. I mean, we know Eden had some kind of relationship with Ricky and David and Brian, so a DNA match there wouldn't have really been a slam dunk anyway. Now, we tried to get more details from investigators about when the male DNA found at the crime scene was eventually tested and when they were able to compare it to DNA collected from each of the suspects. But Detective Sullivan didn't give us much additional information when we followed up to ask. He did say that he knows the male DNA found on Eden was ran against the Minnesota Convicted Offender database to see if there was a match there, which there wasn't. But he said it's unclear how long it's been since that was last done. So, you know, sounds like it could be time to try again. Every so often, the Washington County Sheriff's Office likes to switch up who's looking into what cold cases. Sometimes even physically having investigators draw a cold case card out of their deck. Because it can't hurt to have a different set of eyes on a stack of old files. So that is how Sullivan got the case in 2017. He spent the last few years going over all of the old files, which can be extremely difficult to decipher, by the way. Especially since so much of old case evidence is made up of photocopies from original handwriting, like not even digital. Our reporters sometimes even get asked, like, can you read what this says? And we even find ourselves here at AudioChuck attempting to enhance old documents to try and make some of them more legible. So what he's doing is not always the easiest task, trying to pick back up where someone else left off years ago. But Sullivan is trying. And of everything he's been able to decipher, he says David is the one who still stands out as suspicious. He's one suspect Detective Sullivan wants to follow up with himself now that he's on the case. He also thought Stephen might have some crucial information in his brain. Remember, he was one of the friends that Eden and Ricky were hanging out with the night before she went missing. And Detective Sullivan doesn't think he was a suspect, but he does think Stephen may know more than what he told investigators back then. The problem is, he has since passed away. So Sullivan is trying to find other avenues to pursue that drug trafficking theory since there wasn't much done with it back in the 90s. He told our reporter, JC, that there's a man in prison in Florida who's associated with this tip who he wants to talk to once all the resources allow. And, he says, there is one more potential suspect, also down in Florida. This is a person who was mentioned earlier on in Eden's case files, but for some reason, no one's bothered to speak to him. Until now. 
We're going to call this guy Chris, and investigators are comfortable labeling him as a serial killer. Even though he's only ever technically been convicted of murdering one woman, he is associated with several other homicides that are oddly similar to Eden's. So we're using a pseudonym because investigators say that they don't think this guy has any idea that he's even on their radar for Eden's murder since no one's ever spoken to him about it before. Detective Sullivan is trying to keep it that way until he has a chance to visit him in prison himself. Now, all the other women believed to be the victims of this guy are in Florida, where Chris lived for a long period of time and is currently in prison for attempted murder. But get this, at the time of Eden's murder, Chris was living in none other than St. Paul, Minnesota. One of his pieces that he did with all of them is he either left their socks or their shoes on. And Eden had her white socks was all she was wearing when she was found. So like they were putting that together with, okay, we have a black female prostitute, blunt force trauma to the head, strangled. And so that I think that's why they really got onto Chris. And they were like, ooh, this guy could be good. Now, they may not have pursued that because he did get out of prison. He got off death row and got out. Maybe they just couldn't find him or didn't know where he was. That could be another piece of it. But he did end up trying to kill another female, and then he's currently in prison for that, for attempted murder. Detective Sullivan's got to hurry, though, because Chris is getting older, and this guy is up for parole in 2024. The way she died was was horrible, and to really try to give her some justice. She deserves it. After all these years, you know. I think people that kill so many, they're too narcissistic not to admit to it at some point. I just feel like eventually their truth will come out. I think there's a lot of very interesting and very good leads in Minnesota that I want to chase first, but Chris will never be off that radar. Detective Sullivan told us because their department no longer has the funding or resources for a cold case unit, our podcast has been helpful. Preparing for his interview allowed them to dig deep into Eden's case files again and look at things in a new light. One thing that he's now certain of, whoever did this to Eden, it seems to be intimate. Like Detective Sullivan said, her injuries seemed personal. Even as a seasoned investigator, Detective Sullivan found the crime scene photos particularly hard to stomach due to the disfigurement focused on her face. So for him, it's become personal too. It's the reason why his colleagues say that he was assigned this case. During our interview, Detective Sullivan said he can't help but get emotional when it comes to the cases he works on. That's why he already has a long list of what he plans to do next when it comes to the pursuit of justice for Eden. We have search warrants for DNA that we're going to write. We have interviews that are going to be done. We are obviously going to try to get down to Florida. I think those are important, at least to get him in an initial statement. Even if it's all just BS from him, we can get a statement and then get his DNA. And then just cleaning up this case file. We would never want to talk bad about the people that came before us, because I think they did a great job. Like, they were very, very thorough for that time period leading up to when it stopped. I just, I think there's work that can be done and I think we can find some closure for Miss Young, obviously elder now, and she's getting up in age and it'd be nice to find closure before her time passes. It's been more than 30 years. So honestly, at this point, Detective Sullivan says he is desperate for any leads at all, even if they may seem insignificant. He says their office receives regular tips regarding the county's other cold cases. But sadly, when it comes to Eden Young, 
And this one other case from 1987 involving the murder of another black female sex worker named Darcel Hopkins, nothing new ever comes in for them to follow up on. So if you have any information about the murder of Eden Young, you're urged to call the investigation's tip line at the Washington County, Minnesota Sheriff's Office. That number is 651-430-7850. The Deck is an Audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Love is more than a day on the calendar or a sign-off on a letter. Love starts with you. Show off your personal style with new Pandora jewelry pieces that radiate with your love from every angle. With Pandora's vast selection of rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and charms, there's endless ways to show what's in your heart. Write a love note to yourself or your best friend with handwritten charms or a personal engraving. Shop now at Pandora.net. Pandora. Be love.